Welcome to the Hudson Wesleyan Church Podcast, a recording of the weekly messages of Pastor Wesley Rowan during the Sunday worship service. We trust the time you spend listening will enhance your relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, here is Pastor Wes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers, that there were not many who were wise according to the flesh, not many who were mighty, not many who were noble. Paul is writing to New Testament believers. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts boasts in the Lord. I am not going to retell the entire story from the book of Genesis that Melanie read for us this morning, but we will hit parts of it as we look at Scripture. Sort of a very early, early rendition, it feels like, of uh, maybe the taming of the shrew here going on. Jacob, who, by the way, Jacob is Israel, right? We talk about Abraham, Isaac. It's not really until Jacob comes along a little later on in this story where God really changes his name to Israel, and that's where we get the 12 tribes, and and Israel becomes what we know about it through the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament era. That is all Jacob. But early in Jacob's life, Jacob is not a man to be liked or trusted. Last week, we talked about how God showed Abraham the foreshadowing of the coming of his son by asking him to sacrifice Isaac on the altar. Well, Isaac grows up and has two sons of his own, Jacob and Esau. Jacob is a trickster. Jacob is a liar. He is not trustworthy. In fact, he ends up being hated by his brother. We don't have time to cover all those stories. But Jacob is not to be trusted. Jacob, as Melanie read for us, ends up running for his life because he cheated some people. This is the kind of person that Jacob is, okay? And so Jacob ends up trying to find a safe place to live, living with some extended family who in that time, it would not have been abnormal for marriages to take place from extended family. It's not quite like we think about it today. So Jacob ends up there. And in that era, it also would not have been uncommon for the father to be able to determine who and how and for what value his daughters would be given in marriage. So that's what happens. Jacob works for seven years so that he can marry Rachel. Rachel is beautiful. She's desired by many. And Laban, her father, gets seven years of free labor for Rachel's hand in marriage. I do not know for certain all of the 
ins and outs of what went into Laban deciding to trick Jacob. But I think it is fair to speculate. Some people have said, well, it would have been inappropriate culturally for the oldest daughter to be given in marriage before the youngest. And that might be true, but it was at least common enough that Jacob knew that he could ask for Rachel's hand in marriage. If it was completely taboo, I don't even think he would have asked if he knew that Rachel had to be married first or that, that Leah had to be married first. So he... may have made the decision culturally. I actually suspect that Laban knew in that era that he was that his daughters were of some value to whoever was going to marry them. Now again, in our day today, we would we would kind of I mean if you can't sell your daughters into marriage, um, neither should you. But in that day, it wasn't even just a cultural norm, it was a way for, for providing for the daughter and the woman who was not probably going to go out and provide for herself. The husband who would give something of value to the, the, the woman's family receiving the woman's hand in marriage then was going to provide for her. And I suspect that Laban thought, I know I can marry Rachel off whenever I want to. That's not up for debate. Leah, we might have a little more trouble with. So I've gotten seven years of work out of this guy. Let's go ahead and kill two birds with one stone and make sure that I get Leah married off as well. Now, I don't know for sure how Laban thought it was going to go the day after the wedding. Maybe he didn't care. But Jacob, the trickster, becomes the tricked one. And I love how that account that Melanie read for us says it. That Jacob woke up the next morning and screamed. Who is, what's happened here? Now, I want you to think through this with me. Yes, Laban goes on to say, hey, seven more years, you can have the other daughter. And there's more to that story. But I want you to think about this with me. Scripture tells us that Leah was not very physically desirable, that she she squinted and that she... She wasn't as appealing. Do you think that she did not know this? She knew. Do you think she was excited that her sister was going to get to be married off? Probably. Good for her. Do you think that her heart in those seven years when she knew where the end game was here ever thought it'll never be me? I will never be the chosen one. Marriage in those days was less about just a pure romantic love relationship, but it was more about being chosen, about being the selected one. Okay? 
So even though we should set aside our notions that, that she is sort of sitting in her tent just pining, oh, I will never fall in love. There will never be a prince who rides in on his white horse and takes me away and all of those things. That's true. She wasn't thinking about that, okay? If someone had rode in on a horse and t- taken her away, there probably would have been a war. But I would offer you this. Leah knew that she was not a chosen one. She was not selected. She was not valued. She had little to no value to her father and apparently no value to any other suitors. So Leah knows when she wakes up on the morning after the wedding that she is in a less than desirable situation. Married, yes, to a guy who freaks out when he finds out that she's his wife. This does not make for good anniversary material. Okay? If 12 hours after the wedding's over, the husband's going, what in the world happened to me? This is not good. Not only did she not have value then to her father much, so much so that he had to trick somebody into marrying her, she apparently has little to no value to her husband. Seven years he works after he's married to her so that he can get the woman he really wanted. Now listen, I don't care if you're a man or a woman this morning. When you know that you are devalued, you are not chosen, you're not selected, you're not preferable. When you know that about yourself, it changes how you view yourself. This is Leah. God was not ignorant of her wanting. Could God have made it so Jacob loved her? I suppose. But that seems to do away with the notion of free will. In the back of my mind, I'm seeing... Aladdin rubbing the lamp and then Jeanine telling him there's just a few rules about these wishes. I cannot make people fall in love. So what can God do? He can show her that she is indeed chosen. How can God do that? Culturally, he did it like this. He opened her womb. For better or worse, a sign of honor and favor, particularly in the Old Testament, we see it running through to the Old Testament, and sometimes we see it running even into our modern day culture, is are you having children? And so God opens her womb and allows her to conceive through Jacob because 
if there's anything worse than being married to a husband who didn't want to marry you and works an additional seven years so he can get your sister who he really wanted, if there's anything worse than that, it's that him insisting that you sleep with him the whole seven years that he's working for your sister. That's what happens. She conceives. Rachel does not. And I don't know because Scripture doesn't tell us. I don't know if there are moments of Rachel feeling vindicated or Leah feeling vindicated against Rachel. It is possible. But whatever else is happening, she at least knows that she has some honor culturally in her family. She has some value. Who is it that's giving grandchildren to Laban? It is Leah. Who is it that's giving sons to Jacob? It is Leah. Her first son... is Reuben. And Reuben's name means God has seen my misery. So when the first son comes along, she's still focused on, woe is me. I've been, I've been despised, I've been rejected, I've been devalued, I've been, but God has seen me. Second son comes along, Simeon. The Lord has heard me. So not only has God seen my misery, he's heard my cry. Third son comes along, Levi. His name means attached. Surely my husband now will feel attached to me. We're three kids in and Jacob still feels no attachment to her. Surely now my husband will be attached to me. I'm giving him sons. Rachel is not. The fourth son comes along, and his name is Judah. And Judah's name means, I will praise the Lord. Do you notice how her focus shifts from son one through three to son four? The Lord sees me. The Lord hears me. My husband will be attached to me. All of these are woe is me. But once the fourth son comes along, it pivots to, I will praise the Lord. Not because she had become any less or any more devalued, if you will. She still doesn't have a lot of people who like her. But God has blessed her to have these sons, and she begins to see herself in the context of the relationship that God is blessing her, so she will praise the Lord. And it is this fourth son that becomes the chosen of her sons. Not Reuben, not Simeon, not Levi, but Judah. When her mindset shifted. Let's fast forward on down the storyline, because the story doesn't actually end with 
Leah having children or Rachel eventually having children. There's more to the story about Jacob. We'll talk about that some other time. I'm saying let's fast forward on down the lineage. The story of the chosen lineage of Leah is captured by Matthew in his gospel account where he, more than any other writer in Scripture, notices all the unique ways that God has chosen to bless the line of Israel through the most ridiculous circumstances, obscure people, and none of the people that you would have picked for your team. Leah's son, Judah, is going to grow up have a son who gets married, who dies. Judah tries to convince his other sons to bear children by his now widowed daughter-in-law. They won't do it. She dresses up like a prostitute, has sex with her father-in-law, gets pregnant, and has a baby. That's the next person in the lineage of Leah. How about that? A few generations go by. More children are born. And by this time, the children of Israel, if you follow the generations, have been in exile. They've escaped from Egypt. They're on their way to the promised land. And one of Judah's descendants through Tamar, his daughter-in-law, is now in the promised land and meets one of the only survivors of the city of Jericho, that pagan culture, a prostitute by the name of Rahab. And Rahab bears a son by the descendant of Judah and his daughter-in-law. She's not even Jewish. And God chooses her to be in the lineage. The son that she has, this prostitute from this pagan land, this Canaanite. Her son is given the name Boaz. Boaz grows up to be a wealthy farmer who marries a Moabite woman, also not a Jew, by the name of Ruth. Who should have stayed in her homeland when her husband died, but said to her mother-in-law, I'm going to go where you're going to go. I'm going to worship who you worship. I'm going to live where you live. And so she ends up back in Israel, a pagan, a Moabite, 
gleaning in the fields of this rich farmer who takes notice of her, and she goes in, builds kind of a relationship with him. There's a whole cultural thing we won't get into today about her going into his house and sleeping near his bed and at his feet. And the point is they end up getting married and she now begins to produce children. Just a couple generations down the line, one of them is born by the name of David. David, the second king of Israel, the king most recognized in the history of Israel, the foreshadower of the king who's going to come, the one whose family and family's city will be named Bethlehem, where eventually the Christ will come from. Yes, that David. From Ruth and Boaz and Rahab and Tamar and Judah and Leah. David commits one of the most egregious sins recorded in Scripture. While his men are out fighting in battle, he is staying home, bored out of his gourd, and decides when he sees a woman that is not his wife, that he wants to have sexual relations with, to bring her to him and sleep with her while her husband's on the battlefield. Then through a series of events, he has her husband killed, marries her because she became pregnant. The child that she has through that illicit relationship, and I call it a relationship, it wasn't a relationship, but through that illicit interaction, dies. But in all of Scripture, there is never a finger from God pointing to Bathsheba as having been in the wrong or been the offendee. She was taken advantage of. And so when her son dies, who was conceived in that action by David, God blesses her with another son whose name is Solomon, who's also the one who fits in the direct lineage of Jesus Christ. Go to Matthew chapter 1 and read it. It's all there. So let's figure this out. See, we read the story of, of Leah and we say, you know, oh, how, how terrible for her and how she's treated and all of this. And then, oh, well, God blessed her with children. And, and, and if you just read that on face value in today's context, you're like, wait a minute. She was already despised. She was already not valued. She already feels bad about herself. And so God decides to give her a bunch of kids to take care of as a reward. Probably not what we would have thought. But let's think about this. This one who was not chosen becomes chosen. Her offspring, through some really despicable acts of his own, ends up being used by God to choose his daughter-in-law to be in the direct lineage of the Christ, who eventually has offspring who through their own actions and relationship, whether appropriate or inappropriate relationship, 
with a Canaanite prostitute, ends up producing more of the lineage of Jesus, eventually, who will lead to the interaction between a Jewish man and a Moabite woman who should have had no business getting married, but did, and God chose that Moabite woman to have the next child who will be in the lineage of the Christ, and eventually leads to a king who, for lack of a better phrase, sexually assaults a woman, gets her pregnant, and her second child that she has with him is in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Do you see how when Matthew is writing his gospel and trying to draw the picture that God is more concerned in in the gospel and in salvation than with just the Jewish people? Matthew is the only one who records the account of the wise men. The wise men weren't Jewish. They were Gentiles. But Matthew talks about how God used them in the time of the coming of the Christ. You think it is any accident that Matthew keeps pulling up all the names of the people that God chose to include that nobody else would have included in the story. If you're sitting down to write a story about the Savior of the world, about the Prince of Peace, about the one who deserves to be worshipped and honored and glorified above all else, you aren't putting these characters in your story. It muddles up the beauty except the beauty that God was looking for is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that we already read this morning, that God uses the things that the world considers simple and base and undesirable to be the very things where he will bring about his redemption. Listen carefully. Paul does not say that those people and those things are actually undesirable or that they are actually base. He's saying that's how the world sees them. The world thinks they're foolish. The world thinks they have no value. But God is using the things that everybody else thought are not valuable in order to prove his gospel, his truth, is beyond our ability to craft some sort of redemption. And the number of quote-unquote undesirable people that we find in the lineage between Jacob and Jesus is proof that God is in the business of choosing the unchosen, of selecting the undesirable from this world's perspective. And Paul says that is how it works. So lest, Corinthians, you think that somehow your relationship with God is because of what you have done, it is only because of what he has done. And if you need proof of what he's able to do, look back at how he got from Jacob to Jesus. He chooses those that nobody else would choose. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he picks up on this same theme and says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are the least among all of the peoples, out of you will come the one who will rule my people Israel. Again, the prophets are sharing the message that God is choosing the places that nobody else would choose. When the wise men do come to visit Jesus, where do they go? Jerusalem. Because where are you going to find the Jewish king? In Jerusalem, except he's not in Jerusalem. He's in the backside of a barn down in Bethlehem where nobody else can find him except a few shepherds. That's the way that God works. That's the way that he chooses. And when Jesus himself is finally born, and when he grows up, he's considered an illegitimate child because Mary was pregnant before she became married to Joseph. 
He's sort of a social outcast. He's not hanging out with all the cool, popular religious people. In fact, he's getting mad at them most of the time. Okay? He chooses his crew that's going to change the world. And what are they? Fishermen, tax collectors, outcasts, some women, people that nobody else is going to choose. And Jesus has got his crew that's ready to go change the world. And so fulfills what Isaiah said back in chapter 53. I want to read it to you because we, we think about it often during Christmas time, but it is so much more than that. Who has believed our message, Isaiah says, and who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? For he grew up, now he is talking about the coming Messiah. He grew up from before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of the parched ground. He had, now listen, he had no stately form or majesty that we would look upon him. In other words, all of our renditions of pictures where Jesus looks like a movie star are wrong. Because he was so undesirable, we wouldn't even want to look at him. He had no appearance that we would be attracted to him. Now he's sounding like Leah. He was despised and forsaken. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men would hide their faces... He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Even God's own account through his prophet of the coming Redeemer seems like that is not the guy you want to put on the face of your movement. That's neat. He's not desirable. We wouldn't want to look at him. He's not very popular. Nobody likes him. What in the world? But listen to what Isaiah then says, a foreshadowing of what Paul's going to pick up on in 1 Corinthians when he says that God still used all of this to accomplish what he wanted. Here's what Isaiah then goes on to say, this redeemer that nobody would be attracted to at all is going to be. Surely our griefs he himself bore. Our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But listen, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. So way back when Leah was undesirable, God placed in her womb the seed that would someday result in an undesirable Savior that is the only hope that we have of redemption. And the Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all. So where does that leave us? First of all, First of all, can I tell you this morning that if you feel lost or undesirable or broken or left out or abandoned or ignored, 
the God of the universe sees you. Leah was not wrong in what she said when she named her first son. The Lord has heard me and seen me, her first two boys. He has. He has. But I'll take you one better than that. Not only has he seen and heard you, but you can praise the Lord as she did because your identity is found in the one who died for you. The one who died for you is the byproduct of the most messed up family tree you can imagine. You think your family is messed up? Listen to these people, okay? You ever watch that, that TV show uh, where they go back and do the genealogies? They sit famous people down and they go back and look at their, you know, at their past and their family tree and so forth and so on, okay? I mean, you would have a few good episodes with this this tree. I mean, there's some characters here. They're the kind of people that you say, oh, I, I, wish, I, I wish that wasn't in my family story. I wish I wasn't related to them. That's not the kind of story we sit around and tell at the family reunions. Oh, you remember when mom and, you know, dad and she was his daughter-in-law. And, oh, isn't that? You wouldn't tell that story at the family reunion. You wouldn't even go to the family reunion. And God says, not only did I choose her, and choose that path. But what I chose them for was the redemption of the world. Maybe you're on the flip side. i got to speak to both groups this morning. I don't know where everybody's at. Maybe you're on the flip side, and you're pretty pleased with how you've turned out. I don't know. We're all tempted to be in that space sometimes, right? Yeah, I'm all right. Can I remind you that God is not impressed with our impressiveness? All we like sheep have gone astray. All our, filth, all our righteousness is like filthy rags. But when you feel broken, when you feel lost, when you feel undesirable, when you're not sure what the next step is, can I remind you that all our trust is in Jesus? The assumed illegitimate son of an unfaithful, engaged woman and her really, really messed up family tree. And God laid on him the iniquity of us all. So if last week we pointed to the fact that God's redemption is powerfully shown through the foreshadowing of Abraham and Isaac, today, we see that God's redemption is powerfully experienced regardless of our own insufficiency. And Paul will say, all of the wisdom of the world is confounded by the most simple thing that God chose. Look, I want to conclude with this. I, I think there is a fine line to walk between just saying, well, I have faith and I just trust what the Bible says and so I'm going to ignore anything that anybody else says or that, that any that culture or science or anything else produces that goes against what I believe because I just have faith in the Bible and being people that just say, well, it doesn't matter what anybody else says because I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm just focusing on what the Bible has to say. I think there is danger there because, not because we can't trust what the Bible has to say, but because we get tunnel vision in making the Bible only say the things that we want it to say. 
Do you see the difference? You can trust the Bible all day long, every day. Just be careful that you're not just trusting the parts of the Bible that are most comfortable to you. Okay? So while there is danger in just saying, nope, just me and my interpretation of the Bible, and I don't care what anybody else says because I know this is what, there is some danger there. There is equal parts danger in us allowing the wisdom of the world to dictate the way that we function and see life and the value that we put on things. My friends, listen to me. It wasn't the firstborn of Jacob that received the position of honor in the lineage of Jesus. It was the fourth. It wasn't Judah's sons by his wife that received the position of honor in the lineage of Jesus. It was the illegitimate son through his daughter-in-law. It was the Moabite woman. It was the Canaanite woman. Okay? Be careful that in our desire to be comfortable... And in our desire just to kind of fit in, and I know that these days, like we, there's sort of this, this badge of honor that we stick on about, you know, not going along with the flow and, and kind of and not, not being whatever. But let's be careful that even there we don't find some sort of redemptive value in ourselves. Well, look at me, I'm willing to. Our only hope is in Jesus. And Jesus cares about the least of these. Jesus cares about. Loving the unlovable. Jesus cares about the sinner. And Jesus cares about what is, has eternal value. So while I hope through the blessing of God that our lives are very comfortable here, that's a great blessing of God. It is not where our value is. Okay? And today, if you feel, friends, if for any reason you feel less than chosen, less than selected, less than valuable, can I point you back to the Jesus, the chosen one of Israel, who came from a line of chosen ones that nobody else would have chosen? But he did. And he has chosen you to fulfill the plans and the purposes he has for you today, this week, right now. And nobody else can fulfill them and nobody else can choose them. It is just you and him. And I don't think there's a more beautiful casting of that picture than here in Genesis where he took the undesirable Leah and made her the mother of the line of Jesus. Let's stand together. Perhaps, perhaps, you do feel devalued this morning. Perhaps you do feel as if you have no favor with the Lord or with anybody else for that matter. Can I just in the name of Jesus this morning, can I just put that fear aside and tell you and proclaim to you that whether you feel it or not, you do have value in the eyes of our Lord.
And can I, beyond that, also tell you that whatever comes this week in your life, whatever you're facing, God has your best interest at heart. He's the God who sees. He's the God who hears. And he is the God who answers, even in the midst of us feeling lost. Lord, we are so thankful that our value is not determinate on how we see ourselves or how others see us. And so, Lord, we pray that today and in the days to come that we will find our hope and our value in Christ Jesus alone. The simple things of this world, as it is perceived, have been used to confound even the wisest. Help us to find our value in you. We love you, Lord. And we do thank you for this time that we have had to share together today in your word. Bless us with your grace and your peace, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. You are dismissed, friends. May the Lord bless you. This message is a ministry of Hudson Wesleyan Church, where our mission is to see lives transformed for the glory of God. For more information, you may contact the church at 517-448-6411 or at hudsonwesleyan.org. Thank you for listening, and may God richly bless you.